Harcourt Avenue was extremely popular. But like back going then. into and I was a building, being able to like feel how much life had been lived in there before. I find that's what's interesting about architecture is when architecture reflects the time that it was built in and also reflects like a specific set of values. It was a, it was a big, huge, gracious apartment. And, Great and, for um, parties. Yeah. It was really a lot of the experiences that happened here that built a friendship that's lasted really a lifetime. Welcome to the Pasadena Project, Episode 1, Land Acknowledgement. It's common practice now, at events in Winnipeg and across Canada, to begin with a land acknowledgement. It usually goes something like this. Well, good afternoon everyone. I, um, I want to begin by acknowledging that we're gathered in the heart of Treaty 1 territory and on the traditional homeland of the Métis Nation. That was Winnipeg Mayor Brian Bowman at his State of the City address in 2018. But what do these land acknowledgements really mean? When I started working on this project, I knew that this would be an important question to unpack. After all, architecture is something that directly engages with and is directly shaped by the land around it. And it's impossible to think critically about the places we call home without also thinking about the history of these spaces. To set the stage for what a land acknowledgement for the Pasadena might look like, I want to highlight an excerpt from the introduction to a book that was published in 2018. It's called Stolen City, Racial Capitalism and the Making of Winnipeg by urban geographer Owen Taves. In the book, Taves tells a story of Winnipeg's growth at the expense of indigenous communities and peoples. Winnipeg, a provincial capital of nearly one million people in the Canadian Northwest, internationally known for indigenous social, cultural, and political power, and for anti-native racism, is a native city. It is home to 100,000 indigenous peoples, the second largest indigenous population on Turtle Island. More than simply a location or a container of indigenous life, however, Winnipeg is a place that indigenous people have collectively and strategically decided to remake in order for their families, communities, and nations to survive and thrive in resistance to colonial occupation. The Pasadena apartments are located in an area of southwest Winnipeg called Fort Rouge. It's located a stone's throw from the south bank of the Assiniboine River and just a couple of kilometers from where that river meets the much larger Red River. Where these two rivers meet is known as the Forks, and has been a meeting place for indigenous peoples for thousands of years. The land around Winnipeg has been the home of these communities, including the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, since long before the arrival of Europeans on this continent and the growth of prairie cities like Winnipeg are rooted in colonialism and the dispossession of these communities of their lands. It's important for all Winnipeggers to recognize and understand this history, but it's especially important to tell the story of the Pasadena within this context, 
because of its location and the time period within which it was built. And this is a 1874 map. And one thing that this shows you very clearly is that Fort Rouge was Métis space. Okay, that was all Métis long This is Dr. Evelyn Peters speaking at the University of Manitoba in 2019. She's the author of a book about the history of Roostertown, a Métis community that existed in Fort Rouge for more than half a century. The Pasadena was built smack dab in the middle of that area that Dr. Peters described as being Métis space. Her book offers a glimpse into the ways that Métis communities were pushed further and further away from the growing city of Winnipeg. As speculators bought up land, and during the city's real estate boom of the late 19th century. Here's an excerpt from the first chapter. It is important to acknowledge that Fort Rouge was originally a largely Métis place, and to critically explore the processes through which it was changed from a Métis space to a predominantly European settlement. I wanted to try to conduct this kind of research, to explore the processes through which the land south of the Assiniboine and west of the Red went from a place where Métis families were living one decade to where a luxury apartment block like the Pasadena was built the next. Now, I am not a professional researcher. I don't have a PhD like Dr. Peters. I have a Bachelor of Journalism, which means that I'm pretty inquisitive and that I'm scary good at tracking down someone's phone number. One of the first places I went in my research was to the provincial archives. I wanted to see what information they had on the social history of the land where the Pasadena was built. In the 19th century, much of the land around Winnipeg was divided into long river lots. And the area where the Pasadena was built corresponds to what was Lot 34, of the parish of St. Boniface. The provincial archives have kept the parish records that detail the buying and selling of these lots. It's all preserved on microfilm, and it takes patience to sift through the pages and pages of documents that are often written by hand. They're ordered by lot number. Lot 32. Lot 33. Lot 34. These files are about 150 years old, and they're written in scrawling, hard-to-decipher script. But what emerges is the story of the Ayotte family, who farmed on Lot 34, which stretched west from the Red River for 144 English chains, or just under three kilometers. Pierre Ayotte acquired the lot in 1848, more than 60 years before the Pasadena was built on the land. He farmed the area for over two decades until the lot was purchased by the Catholic Church. Records show that Pierre Ayotte was originally from Saint-François-Xavier, a Métis community just west of Winnipeg. It's possible that this man also went by the name Pierre Lavallée and that he was a member of the Métis Lavallée family. The late Lawrence Barkwell, who was a senior historian at the Manitoba Métis Federation's Louis Riel Institute 
has traced the history of this family. And he has written about a man named Pierre Lavallée, born Pierre Ayot from Saint-François-Xavier. In the 1850s, he and his wife Marie Plante lived on a homestead in Fort Rouge, on the grounds of what is today the Riverview Health Center. One of their children was Louis Lavallée, who was born on this homestead in 1852. Louis was a well-known Métis activist who was part of the Métis resistance, and he married Octavie Riel, the sister of Métis leader Louis Riel. In 1885, he was one of the people sent to bring home Riel's body after he was hanged in Regina following the Northwest Rebellion. This is just the story of one Métis family that lived and farmed in the area now known as Fort Rouge. But Dr. Peter's book details the lives of the dozens of families who formed the community that would be known as Roostertown in the first part of the 20th century. Roostertown grew steadily during the first decade of the 20th century, and the neighborhood's characteristics indicate that Métis urbanization was an adaptive strategy, not a failure to cope with city life, as settler attitudes suggest. A few Métis households had already moved to the fringes of the slowly developing suburb of Fort Rouge before 1901. Sometime around 1890, Scotch Métis James Septison Omond moved his nine children family from the parish of St. Andrews to a plot of land about a block west of the more built-up area, which would subsequently become 669 Jesse Avenue. Although Roostertown is most well-known for being in the area that's now known as Grant Park, this address where the community was first established, 669 Jesse Avenue, was further north. Plotted on a modern map of the area, 669 Jesse is only a block from 220 Hugo Street North, meaning that the Oman family would have been living and farming on land near where the Pasadena was built just a decade later. As the city of Winnipeg grew in the first decade of the 20th century, and Fort Rouge became an increasingly wealthy neighborhood for the city's political and business elite, the Roostertown families moved further and further south. Family that's in the book Roostertown, and so uh, Roostertown was actually located on my family's land on their patent, their lot, um, prior to being sold, of course. Um, but and then eventually, my family uh, leaves Roostertown in uh, around 19. This is Laura Forsyth, the Métis Inclusion Coordinator at the University of Manitoba. Really exciting because it wasn't until I was in a colloquium at the University of Manitoba where Dr. Evelyn Peters came to present that I learned that my family was from Roostertown at all. That part of our history was completely lost. My great-grandmother never spoke of it. Uh, although she was born in Winnipeg, she was born in Roostertown. She never shared that with her children and her grandchildren. She never spoke about being Machif. She never spoke about being Métis. And so that that piece was lost to us. And so when Dr. Peters came to our class and was sharing um, pictures of the uh, genealogies that they had done and the family trees, I noticed that my family tree was on the screen in front of us. It's quite jarring, actually, right? Like, because I always thought, oh, yeah, my great grandmother, that she ran a farm out in the Porridge Prairie and she worked with cowboys. Like, that's what I knew of my great grandmother. 
and to find out that that was true. But also what was also true is that we had always been here in Winnipeg and that our land had been here and our people had lived here for generations, you know, had been in this place, in this space, and that that had been erased uh, by the humility that they had felt about having to be removed and all the things that happened in that space and how people felt about Métis people here in Winnipeg, that you would um, be so humiliated by that that you wouldn't even speak of it is pretty powerful. In her book, Dr. Peters attempts to correct some of the negative stereotypes about Roostertown residents at the time, which were widely propagated in local media and newspapers. More broadly, she tries to correct the assumption that Indigenous participation in cities is a new phenomenon, or that Indigenous life is somehow incompatible with cities. But perhaps most importantly, she rewrites Métis families back into the history of Fort Rouge. Here are excerpts from chapter two of her book. On a cold winter day in 1901, 19-year-old Marie-Julienne Henri married 24-year-old Pierre Hogue in the small Manitoba town of St. Boniface. Despite their poverty, Julienne and Pierre had found enough money to have a wedding picture taken. In 1901, Julienne's large family moved to what would subsequently be called Roostertown, and so did two of Pierre's married sisters, Marie Adèle, wife of German harness maker William Wendt, and Julia, wife of Métis laborer Charles Logan. Julienne and Pierre joined 15 other Métis families who moved into southwest Winnipeg onto land that had reverted to the city because of tax arrears. In 1901, these were the outskirts of the slowly developing, built-up area of Winnipeg. The Hogues and their group joined eight Métis households that had moved into the area earlier, and in 1901, the community was comprised of 115 people. They lived in small, self-built houses in the grass and bush of southwest Fort Rouge, as the area was known then. At least half of these families and their descendants would subsequently live in Roostertown for the rest of their lives. Although the location of the community shifted gradually farther south and west over the years. Dr. Peters identifies 22 families as part of the Roostertown community in 1901. About eight of those families are clustered around the intersection of what is today Hugo Street and Corden Avenue right where the Pasadena would be built a decade later. At the time, most of this area would have been undeveloped, and houses would have been hidden along paths in the bush. Over half of the households had barns, and a number of them kept livestock, including horses and dairy cows. Many of them also farmed crops on their lots to support their large families. But Winnipeg was growing quickly. In 1907, just a few years after the Hogues moved to Roostertown, a streetcar line was built down Cordon Avenue. And by 1911, the built-up area of Fort Rouge had overtaken the Roostertown community. By the time the Pasadena apartments were built in 1912, many of the people moving to the neighborhood were members of Winnipeg's white elite. Many Roostertown families moved further south and west, to the outskirts of the developing areas. But records show that the Oman family stayed at 669 Jesse until at least 1916. 
the continued presence of Métis in Winnipeg and the formation and growth of Roostertown demonstrate a response to settler colonialism that differs from that of First Nations. A close examination of socioeconomic and demographic characteristics of urban Métis people at the time also suggests that, challenging settler expectations of an inadaptability to urban circumstances, Métis used the urban environment to try and make a better life for themselves and their families. The Roostertown community thrived until the 1950s, when Winnipeg City Council transferred the land to a private developer for the construction of the Grant Park Shopping Centre. According to Owen Taves, the city leveraged complaints by white families who were moving to the area and prevalent myths that Roostertown residents were unclean and carried diseases to justify the removal of residents. Taves writes that in 1959, the city evicted Roostertown families and burned their homes to the ground. I asked Laura Forsyth about why it's important for residents of Fort Rouge today to acknowledge this history. I think that every person, regardless if it's Indigenous history or just history, is interested about the place they live. What was there before? Who lived there before? Even when it comes to businesses, you know, like we're, we always want to know those things. I grew up in Transcona and, you know, we went to the Transcona Museum. We wanted to know what did our street look like in 1910. And I think that, you know, Fort Rouge has the opportunity to help their citizens that live in that area know more about their history and know more about the street they're living on just simply by engaging in Roostertown history. I mean, that's powerful. Regardless of the fact that it is a Métis history, it is an Indigenous history, it's their history, and people want to know that. I include these stories to set the stage for the upcoming episodes of this podcast. To acknowledge that the development of Fort Rouge and the construction of the Pasadena Apartments took place on Indigenous lands and relied on the displacement of Métis families. Of course, Roostertown is not the only history that must be recognized. The Pasadena is not an island, and its construction and the lives of its tenants are inextricably linked to the growth of the city around it. The building was built in 1912, at a pivotal moment in Winnipeg's history. The city was booming, and lawmakers needed to find a way to meet the water needs of its growing population. I want to end this episode with an excerpt from the introduction to a book that was published last year. It's called Settler City Limits, edited by Heather Dorries, Robert Henry, David Hugel, Tyler McCreary, and Julie Tomiak. They start their book with a now familiar story about how Winnipeg's water needs were met at the expense of the health of the nearby Shoal Lake 40 First Nation. In 1916, the Great Winnipeg Water District built an aqueduct to meet the needs of the rapidly growing city by bringing fresh water from Shoal Lake to Winnipeg. The project flooded Shoal Lake 40 and turned it into an island. Today, the aqueduct meets the water needs of the city of Winnipeg, but residents of Shoal Lake 40 do not have access to clean drinking water. The construction of this critical water infrastructure was not only violent in its origin, it continues to perpetuate violence on Indigenous peoples and lands far beyond the city's borders. 
The colonial relation continues to be reproduced in the pipelines, fences, and other infrastructure that cut up indigenous territories to fuel and feed cities, the regular denials of indigenous rights to urban housing, and the normalization of indigenous death and dispossession through institutions ranging from the media to child welfare. Yet in spite of centuries of settler colonial violence, indigenous communities endure. Alongside the incredible violence of settler colonial urbanism, indigenous people reappropriate urban space and reassert territorial connections, taking back the city. That was episode one of the Pasadena Project. Thank you for listening. This episode relied heavily on the three wonderful texts by academics who are far better researchers than I am. Those books are Roostertown, The History of an Urban Métis Community by Evelyn Peters, Stolen City, Racial Capitalism and the Making of Winnipeg by Owen Taves, and Settler City Limits, Indigenous Resurgence and Colonial Violence in the Urban Prairie West. Edited by Heather Dorries, Robert Henry, David Hugel, Tyler McCreary, and Julie Tomiak. Many thanks to my mom, Kirsten Werman, my boyfriend, Ryan Friesen, and my friend, Greer Gemin, for reading aloud excerpts. The theme music for this series is by Bougie Belgique, and this episode also featured music by Gillicuddy and Chad Crouch. Links to all those books and music can be found in the show notes. On the next episode of the series, I'll be talking about how the Pasadena came to be built at Hugo and Macmillan in 1912. And, spoiler alert, the Northwest Rebellion and other Métis-led resistance to settler colonialism will be making another appearance. The Pasadena Project is supported by the Winnipeg Architecture Foundation and funded by the City of Winnipeg, the Province of Manitoba, and the Winnipeg Arts Council. And yes, the Pasadena Project is produced on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation.